Welcome to the Wide Lens Podcast. My name is Robert Baharian, and I'm the founder and CEO of Baharian Wealth Management, AFSL 526-798. The information contained in this podcast by me, my colleague, Matt Rigby, or any of our guests may include general advice and does not consider your personal circumstances. You should seek personal advice from a registered financial advisor who can consider whether the general advice is right for you. All right, welcome everyone uh, to Back to the Wide Lens podcast. This is episode number five. We're back. And got Matt Rigby here with me, my good colleague. How are we all? Um, again, quick reminder, uh, you can watch these, check out all the charts that we're going through, all the headlines that we're looking at, and that is through YouTube. Again, Baharian Wealth Management, the Wide Lens podcast is there. But if you want to listen, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, uh, direct via our website. Um, if you've got questions, info at baharianwealth.com.au. Now, Matt, we've got a new segment. I've retitled uh, Matt's Market Recap. One to now Matt's Market Minute. So over to you to kick off. Clock starts now. Uh, Now these are all as of Thursday at lunchtime and uh, just half an hour ago, Russia invaded the Ukraine. So all these numbers are (laughs) very optimistic. Um, But up until last night's close, the NASDAQ was down about 3.7 for the week, 17, nearly 18 for the year. Uh, Apple down about 7% this week. Airbnb down 19. Smash. Smash. Craft up a nine. Five stocks over the past week are up out of the NASDAQ 100. 95 are down. For the year? No, no, for the past week. Oh, for the week? For the year, 73 stocks are down. Uh, Sorry, 73 stocks are down more than 10%. 13 in positive territory for the year of the NASDAQ 100. So 13 of the 100 stocks. Wow, okay. So pretty bad. Uh, S&P up about 2.8 for the week, 12% for the year, down. Both of those are down. Um, Disney down about 6, Etsy down 14. Cisco's up, which is good. Uh, for the Nasdaq 500, 44% S&P down. 500. S&P 500. Is that what I said? No, you said Nasdaq 500. This is going longer than a minute. S&P 500. Uh, for the year to date, 157 stocks positive. 223 or 44% down more than 10%. Um, so a rough start to the year. So 44% down more than 10%. More than 10% right. in the uh, S&P. And what was it in the NASDAQ? About 73%. So mm. diversification, much better. Um, it just goes to that point that, and sorry to cut you off, but we were talking last week why picking stocks is hard. Like yeah. there are these many stocks that are down more than 10%. Yep. Um, I'm not sure. What, what did you say? The S- oh, the SB just now down more than what 10% now, but last yeah. week it wasn't. And those numbers will be more yeah. come yeah. Yeah. market gotcha. open gotcha. tonight. Uh, emerging markets, we mentioned last week, has been holding up pretty well. It's down 3.9% for the week, down 27 for the year. Still surprises me. Interestingly, Russia represent, represents about 3% of the index. Uh, oil up 2%, up 28 for the year. Bitcoin, the gold hedge... Not so hedgy at the moment. The inflation down hedge. The, the, sorry, the inflation hedge. Yeah. Down 4% for yeah, the week. Calm yourself. Uh, down tw- I'm trying to rush. Down 22%. <laughs> Got to name it. Matt's two minutes. Um, but down 
Bitcoin's down 5% yeah. in the last half hour since Russia invaded. So, and gold's up about 2%. Yeah. Uh, and oil spiked above $100 for the first time since 2014. Has Putin gained weight? I just saw like a tweet come through with him <laughs> down. He's, His face looks he's, a bit chubbier. It's winter. you got to hypernate. You know, <laughs> it's it always winter, winter in Russia. should be starting to lose. Uh, it is. Uh, <laughs> maybe that's why I'm trying to start something. You know, it's, it's the Winter Olympics are over. They've got nothing else to focus on. Let's, let, let's, let's continue uh, on a topic that we talked about a couple of weeks ago, which was bond um, inflows, bond outflows. Bloomberg had this article, bond funds lurk as a challenge to Fed's inflation fight. I'm just going to quote this. Bond funds are in a bad spot and it will probably get worse. A crash to earth for growth stocks and cryptocurrencies is one thing, but a sharp decline in mainstream bond mutual funds could spell enormous trouble. Signs are emerging at the beginnings of a potential downward spiral in these funds, which could ultimately lead to redemption halts and subsequent panic by retail investors. That could pose the biggest challenge to the Federal Reserve's plans to tame inflation through rate increases and quantitative tightening. I want to bring this chart back up that we put together through Refinitiv, uh, and it shows historical weekly bond flow for US um, mutual funds and ETFs. We brought this up last time. It's not millions, Matthew. It's billions. <laughs> and so the argument is even more powerful now than it was a couple of weeks ago. But in the last two weeks, we've seen over $30 billion of money flowing out of the bond market. Now, we haven't seen that since 2020. And have a look on this chart. There was a weekly outflow of almost $120 billion in, in aggregate. Um, I'm just looking at some rough numbers on, on um, the weekly net outflows in the bond market during COVID and you're at 20, 40, 80, 120, 220, 300, I'd say $350 billion at least of outflows in the, from, in the US. Yeah, that's insane. Um, and, and, and that is when the Federal Reserve came in and threw the kitchen sink at the bond market to yep. literally stop the bleeding. Yeah. And look, I, I'm, I'm not saying that this is a big deal now, but if you're seeing these numbers come out, we haven't seen anywhere near those numbers since COVID. We, the we current saw, numbers. Yeah, the current numbers. In fact, we haven't seen – if you strip COVID out of that chart, not even in during the taper tantrum did we see that 2018. Was 2018 the taper tantrum no, or was it 2017? 2018 was where whoever the Fed chair was at the point – at that time came out and said, we're raising rates and we're just going to do it. That's right. And they, and then, they did a U-turn on yeah, that one. Yeah, about three months later, they did a complete U-turn. Um, but it, does, but it yeah, doesn't matter. I mean, like I said, it's, it's not a big deal. The thing I think about is negative returns feed on negative returns and it's a yeah. downward spiral. Yep. And typically what happens with these types of redemptions is you've got bond, bond managers pulling, paying redemptions out from cash and then they'll use ETFs or something listed to provide them with liquidity. Yep. But once they go beyond those firewalls, you've then got actual bonds you're going to have to start selling, selling down. And you know what happens following all those things? You have, you know, like we saw in the GFC with the mortgage funds, you have um, halts, you have redemption freezes. Yep. Uh, Yellen said the same thing. Um, after the March 2020 crisis. I believe it is important to look very carefully at the risks posed by the asset management industry, including BlackRock and other firms. FSOC, which is a financial stability oversight council, I think, think so. began to do that, I believe, in 2016 and 2017. 
but the risks it focused on were ones having to do with open-end mutual funds that can experience massive withdrawals and can be forced to sell off assets that could create fire sales. This is actually a risk we saw materialising last in spring in last spring in March. I just want to bring up this second chart, which was uh, which is the Pimco uh, Global Opportunities Inco- Income Fund. Now, this is for the last. Three, two or three years now, three years I think, um, and you can start to you see that massive drop in the price of mm-hmm. this particular fund that that's running you know billions of dollars of uh, bonds. Mm-hmm. Uh, the only thing that stopped the bleeding is when the Fed came in and literally threw the kitchen sink at that damn thing yep. and yep. just knocked it back into shape. So uh, I've I've got the numbers here. Um, so the fund's a $143 billion fund, which declined 13% in 30 days before the Fed acted. Wow. This triggered outflows of about $14 billion. All in all, the fund shrank 18% in a few weeks, like literally within, within a week, so like one-fifth of the fund's gone. <laughs> That's, I mean, phenomenal numbers. Um, it'd be interesting to see what the outflows have been this year for this fund. Uh, just to put that in perspective, obviously they're going to be a lot less, but there's just a, I think, sentiment breeds sentiment, as you mentioned earlier. And we see that in the stock market all the time. You know, things are really good. Traders, investors don't tend to care about a few little things, but when things are bad, they're everything. Mm. Uh, Yeah, arguably we're we're seeing that this year. And so don't Um, you think like a lot of what the Fed's been talking about, what hasn't helped is obviously with what's going on now with Russia, Ukraine and the world, uh, that is not helping people's sentiment. It is not helping what is going on in the market. And maybe it's just pure coincidence. That I, I still feel like there's too many things going on at the moment that means that the Fed needs to go as hard as what was probably being talked about. Yep. Bloomberg uh, had this article, which we won't talk about for too long, Fed traders have dialed back bets on a supersized March hike. So you know how we're talking about, you know, 150-point hikes, 75-point hikes? <laughs> it may very well be that a 25-point hike with in light of what is going on now is probably Pretty the right thing for what needs to happen, yeah. for what is going on right now. I, I don't know. I'm, I not so. a, I'm not an expert uh, bond person, nor am I, nor am I an expert in, in interest rates, but... I just, I just can't see the upside in going hard so early Too with everything hard. that's going on because the market's doing so much of what the federal... You said a couple of weeks ago, Ben Bernanke said, that the role of the Federal Reserve is 90% talk, 10% action or something yeah, along those yeah, lines. Yeah. Yep. I think that was, I well, think it, was it. It's so, always on the money. Yeah, no, and look, I think, um, it, I think we talked about or you talked about the, the difficulty of trying to predict rate moves in you know, September and October of this year when it's bloody hard to predict what they're going to be. You know, so many things can change. So, you know, look from where we were at the start of Feb to the end of Feb, you know, Ukraine, Russia is now a much bigger thing. Inflation numbers have coming much, much stronger. Um, you've got all of these kind of counter winds or counter flows going against each other. Who, know, who knows what the Fed's going to do? Could the Fed uh, not raise? Like, is that a... Is uh, that, or do you reckon I, that I, I think, you know, it's interesting. I, I think the... The Fed almost have to raise just to show the market they're not behind the ball or not mm. further behind the ball. Sure. Um, and I almost think the Fed have to raise by 50 basis points because the market's already thinking they're already behind the ball. So if they only do 25, is that enough or is that just staying the same distance behind this theoretical ball? 
or if they go 50 basis points, you know, so it's, it's really difficult. The, what The key thing is they have to manage expectations of future rate rises and, and I don't think they've done that particularly well. I think but they but came how, out, how can you manage people's expectations of future rate rises if you don't if know you don't what know the future happening. holds? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> like uh, I, I, I get the whole management of expectations. Um, but, but I think if you came out and said, all right, let's raise rate, we're going to raise rates by 50, Jay Powell comes out, does his, does his you know, briefing or whatever it is and says, you know, we've gone 50 now, but we're not planning to raise next month. We just want to see what the impact of this is with our reducing our quantitative tightening. All this is happening at the same time. Let's, let's do a big one now. We'll give it a couple of months, see what the impact is. I think that's how you kind of manage it, barring any massive you know, world war or whatever the hell happens. Um, I think the market would take a lot of comfort out of that going, all right, we've got some certainty. We've got the rate rise that we wanted but didn't want. Um, and you know, maybe that settles nerves a bit. But you know, to, to your point about bonds earlier and the outflows, now these sorts of events, Russia, Ukraine, that's when bond inflows would typically happen. Mm. But we've got this happening Safety. with a about to take off rate hiking cycle. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's just, it all kind of feels like it's all messed up. You know, things just aren't in sync like they would have been historically. Um, we'll, we'll know more in a week and, and a couple of weeks. Um, Let's move on to a topic that I enjoy reading, uh, which is ESG. Enjoy in what way? <laughs> Explain that. I'll, I'll share my point of view. Sarcastically. Um, Bloomberg Markets, ESG funds managing $1 trillion are stripped of sustainable tag by Morningstar. So Morningstar stripped over 1,200 funds that no longer merit the ESG label. Uh, which ESG is an enormous number. Yeah, like that's just the that's <laughs> just the tipping point, right? Yeah, possibly. I feel like this whole concept, this ESG. Look, I think it's all important, you know, climate change and the way we're living. And you know, I watched David Edinburgh's uh, documentary. I'm fully on board. But the take to take that narrative and to slap it on the front cover of a of a PDS and a managed fund and change your font. Uh, your <laughs> colour palette from red to green, green. doesn't make you an ESG fund. <laughs> Apparently Putting not. green trees on the front cover of your document does not make you <laughs> an ESG fund. And the one example I love giving, I'm sorry to my friends at UBS, UBS had a fund, <laughs> the Australian Ethical Share Fund or some bullshit like that. They raised half a billion dollars. You know what their ESG filters were? <laughs> no arms, no arm manufacturing. In Australia? In, it's Australian yeah, share funds. So they're everywhere in the Aussie market. Uh, so. No tobacco manufacturing. Okay. And I can't remember what the third one was. But the point was none of those filters, there, there were no companies in Australia in Australian market. that met that criteria. Oh, but, but people felt very good. I'm investing in, a, in, an, in an ethical... Well, they weren't lying. Well... They were, they were know, true to the, label. The, 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 the <laughs> Tinder swindler didn't do anything wrong either, did he? Like... Well, he... No. <laughs> what do you th like? I I just think that that our industry is taking the piss out of people. Our industry takes advantage of narrative, PR too much. Marketing. It's all marketing. I and mean, we saw with another fund who we may or may not leave unnamed, but they were saying that their returns have been what average ten percent each year for the last ten years. Platinum. 
<laughs> Mate, that, was, were, that but, what? That but was the, the market had bullshit. done like thirteen. No, I think I think the <laughs> was narrative crazy. was we've done double digits, oh, double digits, double That's digits yes. for since inception. And yeah, so yeah, and we market, we, we looked at the numbers, and I'm like, <laughs> bring the S and P 500 up, and the S and P had like 25 percent or whatever. I don't yeah, know, yeah, the market had done significantly better, but it's all just marketing. They're not lying. But they're just not telling the whole I truth. Think it, I think it's deceptive. Um, I think it's deceptive. What do you think about that? Uh, yeah, look, I, and, and I was pretty surprised uh, at just how many funds Morningstar found to be I reckon in violation more. of their own. You know, it's not like there is a central board out there saying, all right, if you're going to slap ESG on, here's what you need to do. These are these funds setting their own ESG oh, that's right. guidelines. They didn't meet. It's, it's, like, it's like the managed funds that don't even beat their own benchmark. Yeah. <laughs> so we're, many, we're benchmarking against cash. Oh, oh, shit, yeah. we can't even do that. And, yeah, so they're not even meeting their own labels. I mean, if you can't do that, then what's the point? Yeah, I, I agree. I think, I think investors, it's, it's really disappointing but I think investors really need to lift the bonnet on. on and look, ESG... And it's hard. I mean, how do you do that? You be, get the top 10 holdings, everyone's, right? Yeah, I, I agree with that. But I think you've got to look at the philosophy, the methodology and the process of how a, a money manager is investing. Um, and the other challenge is, is that my ethical standpoint um, and social and governance standpoint is very different to yours. And so to try and come up with this universal uh, rule book... Impossible. Uh, absolutely. But I think we're moving in the right direction. You know, for example, there are money managers who, there who don't exclude mining stocks, for example. They say we're going we're gonna to allocate capital to mining stocks who are moving in the right direction. And right direction in this criteria that we've outlined. And I think that's all, that's all great. But I think there's a lot of piss taking at in, in, in all of this and I think investors do really need to proceed with caution. What you think you're getting, no, I'm going to put my money on the fact that you're not getting what you think yeah. you're getting. Now, this was US, right? US yeah. only, not yeah. elsewhere. So wait till Morningstar Australia do their deep dive. And we'll sorry, UBS, I could be wrong. See what happens. You're not sorry. <laughs> You'll get a phone call. Um, all right, so let's, let's move on. Unless, of course, you want to rant for a little longer. No. Uh, so, uh, dual pullback. So, uh, we'll bring up this chart from Sentiment Trader, uh, which is showing the frequency or occurrence of both the bond market uh, and the S&P 500. So, the bond market, as um, judged by the uh, Bloomberg US Aggregate Bond Index and the S&P 500, both pulling or dropping by more than 5%. At the same time. At the same time in the same week. Uh, which, as you can tell by this chart, does not happen very often. And this chart goes back to the... 75, 76? Only a few years ago, but the 70s. Uh, it's a good, good data set. Wonderful decade. Uh, yes, absolutely. And so it's happened, what, well, I didn't even but can count, we get just, just let's just say eight times. Just go back, though. Like, the reason why people invest and diversify is and put money in bonds and stocks is because typically they do the opposite thing, right? They're supposed to. I mean, the, the, the financial theory has proved over time, I think. I actually haven't had a look recently. But anyway, it was that when stocks fall, uh, that should be times when there's a lot of volatility, a lot of, sorry, a lot of uncertainty, economic uncertainty, 
and the flight to quality. You hear that often. And, and that security. essentially means going into bonds. And bonds are pretty secure, government bonds. You know, the governments, Western governments, don't tend to go bankrupt all that often. They're, they're, you know, you can pretty much guarantee you're going to get your coupon and you will get your principal back on maturity. So that, that's the flight to safety. That's the defensive part of your portfolio. So it doesn't happen often. I just did quickly counted. So eight times in the last 46 odd years have we had a situation wow. where bonds have fallen 5% and the S&P 500 by 5% in a particular week. Um, do, you think, do you think that can that's going to happen more often if interest rates have been in this downward trend for the last 30 or 40 years? And so any upward movement in interest rates, given that we're coming off such a low base, could it be at all possible that we potentially may see this event happen more frequently than we have in the past? Yeah, it, it, it could, yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, over the last few years, there's been a lot more commentary around bonds are behaving very similar to equities. You know, when bonds sell off, when equities sell off, there isn't this strong flight to quality. Yeah, and there are questions about is that because there's been intervention, there's massive liquidity that's been pumped out by central banks. All of these factors that we haven't had in the past are distorting you know, your historical norms or, or what has been proven through research um, historically. So uh, it, it's quite possible and, and maybe even more probable than, than we might like to realise. Um, does, does that which, mean... You know, that brings into question what's a 70-30, 60-40 portfolio worth? Should we just go up home, 90% stocks, 10% cash? I mean, a, little, a little while ago, I can't remember who, who put the data together. I think it might have been Wall Street Journal who put together a portfolio of stocks back in, I don't know, 20 or 30 years ago. And the composition of a typical stock, a typical investment portfolio was, you know, 40% bonds, 60% stocks. So maybe show me this, yeah. And you, you, you have an average return of, I don't know, I'm making these numbers up, 10%, average volatility of... You know, 15%, I know, 7.5% return, uh, 15% volatility. And then they showed a composition of a portfolio. And I think they worked backwards to say, in order for me to achieve this same return and same level of volatility and risk, what does the, my portfolio composition need to look like? And beyond stocks and bonds, there's a whole bunch of other stuff in that in, in the portfolio. So you had to have alternative assets, you had to have private equity, you yep. may have had to have some real estate in there. Some and credit. And the whole portfolio was was very different, and maybe just comparing these two, you know, investments now in this environment may not be, you know, people saying is a sixty forty portfolio dead. Maybe it is. Maybe it isn't. I don't know. But but maybe that forty percent component of defensive assets is not necessarily bonds only. It should now be made up of credit, real estate, uh, private debt, because there's investments now that that were never available to investors. Even 10 years ago, you and I talked about this. Mm. 10 years ago, 15 years ago, there are so many more opportunities now and I wonder if these types of comparisons hold as much weight as they may have held in 1980 when stocks and bonds fell, what's this number showing, 1980, 10% in the same week, which is insane. It, yeah, like it where, is insane. where do you hide? But, That's but also, what, what's changed? Why does that not work anymore? Whereas, let's assume it worked back then. Um, so why, what, so what, 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 what's changed? Diversive, why yeah, why is that 60-40 portfolio um, achieved better returns historically than what it is over the last, or what it has over the last five or ten years? I, because interest rates have been going numbers. down. 
And that's yeah. why you in, that's why investors have made a ton of money, uh, and that's why bond managers have things have worked out. You've just had this secular tailwind. Bond returns have been very strong because you've had a tailwind. Rates are constantly going down. Yeah. So no, the question is, where do you go point. now? Right. Yeah. Oh, I don't know. We could dedicate a whole podcast series to that. <laughs> uh, but um, anyway, so that that was interesting. And the other thing that it's somewhat related, um, bespoke put out a chart recently of the, the NASDAQ death cross. Uh, so, the, the, so this is a theory or a, not a theory, a, a term you'll hear thrown around. So that's when the 50-day moving average... Are technical analysis? Yeah, not. Uh, I'm reading the chart that they've got in front of me. Uh, it's a 50-day moving average drops below the 200-day moving average. So we'll bring up this chart here, the NASDAQ composite. Um, so it's only happened, oh, I can't remember, I think seven times... Since 1972. But why does that matter? What does that, what does that even mean? Um, so it's meant to be this indication that it's all about to hit the fan. Like the, the NASDAQ's in free fall. It's going down and it's going to keep going down. And that's down. the name. That's the death cross. The death cross. I mean, it's, okay. come on, it's scary, right? It, uh, it's a little frightening. <laughs> so, uh, but, you know, as as so often with, with these sorts of generic claims, um, it's proven not to actually play out all that often. Uh, so the next table here, uh, from 1972 through to 2022, the instances of death crosses that returned one week later, one month, three months, six oh, yeah. months, one year. So, you know, it's not all bad. Uh, one week later, 90% of the time, you have actually had a positive return. Um, and you can then you can kind of see it flattening out 70 to 60% of the time, which, you know, three out of... A lot of those two, numbers two out of three years, you're start to line up with what, anyway. what the numbers you and I have looked at in previous yeah, charts absolutely. as well. I mean, that's kind of on par with what you'd expect to be a positive or negative return in any year. Anyway. I think the whole, yeah, the whole point is that there's going to be a lot of noise in, in the short run. But once you start pushing out daily, weekly, things start to have some predictability Normalise. Yeah, um, let's Yeah, Let's move on. All right. Uh, so, uh, oh, German PPI. So PPIs, producer price index. Uh, this is just something that uh, Mohammed Alarin, who is the I don't know chairman of everything, it feels like <laughs> he's uh, well, he works at. I uh, enjoy listening to Mohammed. No, I quite like him, and this is why I follow him on LinkedIn. Um, he's at Cambridge, chief professor, and so he was stuff, at uh, uh, Yeah, but then Allianz, I think he's their chief economist at Allianz. He's on a whole bunch of stuff. Anyway, smart bloke, much smarter than I. Feel free to join us on the pod, Mohammed, if you're ever listening. <laughs> Um, so anyway, he put out this chart showing that the German producer price index was rising at the fastest pace since 1949 and had risen 25% annualised up until January, um, and which people, is mind-blowing and that's what caught my eye. For people who don't know what it is, though, what, what does that actually mean? So that is the, index? The, the inputs that producers are, are seeing. So, so what are our input costs doing you know, to produce Something. whatever it is that we're producing? Um, he also noted that X energy, it was still up 12%. Mm. So it's a pretty broad base, um, you know, rise in, in prices. Uh, I guess with Putin uh, invading Ukraine, you, the Russia supplies 40% of Europe's natural gas, 25% of their oil. That energy component is going to come, mm. you know, become a lot larger. And, you know, at the time in oil wasn't above 100 bucks and it now is. So I think... 
that number you could probably expect to see increase. But again, we come back to this. Is this just a tra- an elongated transitory um, phase? But no, no one predicted a, a, an invasion of, of Ukraine. Like, I didn't see that in the uh, top 10 predictions for this year, although geopolitical <laughs> was there, right? Um, <laughs> so <laughs> Th- That's just wrapped up under the heading of geopolitics. Yeah, absolutely. It's a cover-all. Uh, anyway, so just, you know, it continues this theme but these price rises are real. I think I saw something from Woolworth CEO yesterday saying something very similar that consumers are seeing these prices you know, go up on the shelves week after week. Like everyone is now starting to really see it. Before it was, I uh, you know, manufacturers are seeing it, but now it's really kind of coming into the. Can I can I can I talk about um, the contradiction then on that? Yeah, absolutely. On, on that note, um, so. Just looking at the most recent data coming out, uh, and this is US data, so University of Michigan consumer sentiment data came out and it's the lowest that it's ever been since almost 2010 Mm -hmm. where uh, we were were in in, in the recession uh, following the – or during the GFC. Um, And so when you look at that, you think, wow, consumers are really bearish. The sentiment is really weak. Um, and since it jumped back up from 2020, since COVID, uh, since uh, it spiked and then we're on this massive decline. And if that's all I showed you, 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 you can make a whole bunch of assumptions mm-hmm. uh, in, in and around that. So let's then bring up this second chart, which is US retail and food sales, which is where we're seeing, you know, there might be the PPI index that you're talking about, Woolies, McDonald's, you know, all of these uh, chains, restaurants, uh, retail. Have a look at this chart. You can see the hue. You can see since two thousand and twelve, there's been a pretty consistent rise uh, in retail and food sales in the US. You see, it's pretty clear where COVID hits and it just falls through, Man. falls through the floor, yep. comes back up again, and it starts to somewhat normalise. And then see that little dip after that peak after the after the uh, COVID and then it just goes bonkers. I mean, it's almost vertical there at that and so, 21. And so if you look at if you look at what – and this is starting to gain some traction with some of the headlines. If you look at what people are telling, you know, surveys about how they feel, oh, I'm not feeling very optimistic because inflation is really high and I'm not going to be able to do this and business conditions are really uh, – I've got a negative outlook on that or, or whatever the responses are to, to some of these surveys. Yet what people are actually doing with their credit card and what they're doing with their money is contradicting what they're saying. So what, why is that? Why do you think people are talking about inflation as a really bad thing, yet, you know, I'm still buying a coffee every day even though the coffee price has gone up and Carlos is still buying, buying Guzman and Gomez and I don't know the price of burritos have gone up. But we're still doing these things and it's almost this watch what I do, not what I say kind of thing. Yeah. It, are these surveys pointless now? And, and I'm gonna No, go on, the, I, the first one maybe. The second one's not. I'm going to go on a tangent here. Do you remember the Trump election that he won? And, and there was a lot of research come out afterwards to say no one wanted to say they were going to vote for Trump, but they were going to vote for Trump. <laughs> yeah, I remember that. And, and, and I think when Morrison got in last time as well, same sort of thing was happening. Like, are we just 
I don't know what it is. I kind of think, are we so distrustful of the people taking the surveys? We don't want to say what we're really thinking. Is that what we're uh, supposed to say? We're supposed to say, supposed yeah. Supposed to say, yeah, no, it's, no. it's, it's really tough out there. Feeling you know, pretty bearish. Prices are going up. I'm, I'm not happy. Spend, spend, spend. I don't know. I mean, it's, it's really interesting. And because a lot of decisions and a lot of, you know, just political investment, whatever it is, are made off these, you know, consumer sentiment surveys and, and whatever else. So, um, yeah, there's a lot of people doing things that are completely the opposite to what's actually happening. I was going to say, do you surveys. remember, but you wouldn't remember, but you knowing, knowing and having a look at some of the numbers, um, post-World War One and Spanish flu. <laughs> I don't remember that. <laughs> yeah, I remember. <laughs> um, we had a massive, so, you know, the roaring 20s, we had massive boom after people were released out of lockdown. Yeah. Lock, lock, What's that? What's called? Is that what, I can't remember what, what we used lockdown. to call it. It's, it was called lockdown. Dan's lockdown. I think so we when people it. when we when they got out of lockdown, I don't know if there was government handouts back then, but here we, we've got a combination of government stimulus uh, handouts plus lockdown. You're caging people in. Now you've got money and you're let free. I I, I don't doubt these retail sales and food sales numbers for well, for a moment, right? It's hard to fudge actual sales numbers. And so you see this boom. And and then you've and then I wonder if you go through this period of exhausting what savings you did have, yep. and then you know the analogy of I'm going to have three, three scoops of ice cream for a little while, and then you kind of get over that, and you're going back to your two scoops or one scoop of ice cream. Like, I wonder what impact that has on um, on these retail sales and these food sales once we kind of get over that. Um, what's the word? The just the hype and the excitement, the euphoria. You, yeah. That once we hit over that hump, I just wonder then if those numbers, like, have we created a new plateau, just a new level? Are we going to fall back to the historical norm that it's kind of growing at a at a, at a certain pace? Because if that's a new normal, okay, that I'm not, I, I can kind of get that. But if we see this, the number turn and we start to see people pulling their spending. Maybe the interest rates are doing that. Maybe inflation in and of itself is supposed to do that. Maybe it hasn't gone long enough. I don't know. What do you think? Maybe, uh, it, before I answer that, it's really interesting to see these sentiment surveys overlaid with actual sales. See if there's a lag in the trend. So maybe it's people saying, all right. Um, what do you mean? Oh, sentiment and yeah, sales. sentiment and, and <coughs> oh, sales. The, the, the change. Overlaid. So is it oh, people saying, yeah, we feel pessimistic, but we're still spending for now, to your point, still getting three scoops of ice cream. But in a couple of weeks, we're going to have to cut that out. Interest rates are going up. We're pretty pessimistic about that. Is it the headlines that, you know, markets are down? All those headlines are, are pointing to a negative survey. No, yeah, but prices surprising. are going up, Matt, right? So you just said Woolies and McDonald's and Chipotle and, you know, fuel companies, they're pushing prices to consumers. People are paying that. Isn't, isn't that as effective as, maybe it's not, I don't know, is it not as effective as interest rates going up? Yeah, because you've only got a certain amount of dollars to spend. To your point, once your savings have been exhausted, you can only spend so do you think it at could most be, what's coming in. Right. So maybe we've got this lagged effect. Is it like a honeymoon? Of we're getting towards the bottom of our savings. Right. All right, we're going to have to start. I, mean, I don't know. Um, I think you're right, though. Inflation... It doesn't cut spending, but it reduces the amount you can buy. So you might still sure. spend $1,000 every week, but you're only getting, I don't know, whatever. A two-seater couch, not, yeah. not a three-seater couch. Yeah, I mean, you're still spending, you, but supermarkets are where you're going to see it. So you still have to buy food. So that bill's going up, so you don't spend 
you know, at Macca's or, or wherever else it is, um, yeah. Guzmani. Uh, yeah, so I, I don't know, but, but it's one to watch because it will be really interesting what the Fed does, being US data, if those retail sales data does start to, to roll over. Um, yeah, because they, they are one that definitely watch those sentiment numbers, Reserve Bank here as well, because it's uh, always been seen as a bit mm. of an indicator. I, I just think there's a bit of a sales. contradiction there. Um, but let's, let's, let's wait and see what happens when the rubber hits the road. Yeah, well, let's hope it uh, doesn't hit too hard. Um, so here's uh, just, uh, I don't know, I, I feel almost bad bringing this up now. It didn't uh, a few hours ago. <laughs> But <laughs> this is uh, an article uh, looking at um, how the S&P 500 has reacted historically to uh, Russia taking over Crimea uh, and, and the Omicron Delta variants of COVID. And, and basically the question is what matters more to markets? Is it the geopolitical war or invasion uh, or is it the you know, um, pandemic that we've gone through? So we'll bring up the first chart here. Um, and so basically this is the time when Russia annexed Crimea, I guess is the, the right term. Uh, and interestingly, it was also February of 2014. Just a, a random note there. Uh, but yeah, the market kind of sold off initially, bounced back, stumbled, stumbled, and then kind of went on its merry way. Um, so that was, you know, n- not a, a great deal. As we've kind of looked at before, I think we looked at last week that that you know, these sort of events, unless they turn into world wars, don't tend to have a lingering impact on the market. Uh, then if we bring up the next chart, we're looking at uh, the early onset or, or post the recovery, but the Delta variant sort of coming into play. What's that, May, April of 2020 in the red there. Mm. Uh, interestingly, we had a spike and then a sell-off and a bit of a nothing and then, then on the markets went. Uh, and then the last, the yellow one there, which is the Omicron kind of overlaid with interest rate inflation, inflation expectations and, geopolitical and all that. Geopolitical, of course. Events, yeah. um, so, I, I, you know, the... It was what, just what do you make out of this? Well, I, I was just really interested because if you listen to the media, everything is bad right now. So Russia invading Ukraine or the prospect of terrible for markets. You know, the first chart shows it wasn't so much, you know, of a bad thing the first time around. Granted, this is a little bit different. Uh, but also, I think what shocked me more of, of all of this is that the Delta variant, when that first surfaced, which was you know, pretty bad, or, or so we were led to believe, but the, the uh, potency of it was a lot higher. Um, mm. The markets didn't really react at all. It, you know, based on this, they kind of just went, we're going up. Yeah, but don't uh, you feel like yeah. at, at that, I mean, it's easy for us to sit here and look back at that and go, oh, yeah, it... it it kind of fell and it bounced back up and, and you know, it went on its merry way. But when you're living and in breathing the in it yeah, at yeah. that point in time, you do not have the benefit of any foresight whatsoever and the market's falling and you've got headline... I, I'm, I don't, I've stopped watching the news. I've just got sick of the same shit over and <laughs> over and over and over again. I'm like, this is enough. I, I can't do this. Long. But when you're exposed to that, and you know, billions have been wiped off the market. Mm-hmm. You 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 will you will start suffocating. And if you haven't built the muscle, the investing muscle, to be able to uh, live through these ups and downs, 
you should not be here because you're going to you're going to make a poor decision absolutely. that is going to absolutely destroy a generation of wealth. Yeah. Um, yeah, 100% agree and it's all about I guess the the noise at the moment isn't necessarily always as bad as what it seems and you know the start to the year's been pretty rough as we saw in the numbers earlier but you know a 17% pull down in a market that has returned I don't know, 150 odd percent from the low. I mean, that's nothing, right? I mean, it, you know, I think I was listening to um, Morgan Housler, who's a, an author, and he was saying volatility is the price of admission. So if you want to invest in yeah, the market, I you've just got to, you've got to expect volatility. You, can, you, you know, the last two years have been the exception, excluding the, the pull down in, in Fed yeah, March. Yeah, free entry. But yeah, I mean, you've absolutely had free ride. Uh, and now we're starting to see what is normal. And, you know, a 10% pullback on no real news is not unusual. Totally normal. We've had real news this year, but, you know, 70%, and I think last week we were at, at 9 10 12%, whatever it was, it's not a lot. It's pretty normal. We're in February. The year's only just getting started. Things will normalise once rates start to move, once... Putin does whatever the hell it is he's trying to do over there. You know, it, it will stop. It will end. Markets will focus again on earnings and off they'll go again. If, I said, if I said to you, though, um, that in six months' time, Matthew, we're going to have inflation sitting, what's that, 7.2% on year-on-year change? Yeah, they're about. 7%. We're, we're, so we're going to have inflation. We're going to have the Fed talking about raising interest rates. We're going to – I'm going to tell you – I've telling you that the that Russia is invading Ukraine for these reasons, the US is getting involved, sanctions are on the table, and, and, I, and I ask you, what is the stock market going to be doing? You wouldn't say the S&P 500 is down 10%, would you? I reckon you would have a pretty difficult task of trying to work out what the market's going to do. Yeah. If you throw all of that in... I'd say it's probably down. But I wouldn't say it's down 10 I'd say you're probably down 20%. 20? Yeah. I'd say. Some stocks are down 80%. But yeah. If you, if you look at the S&P 500, you're down, you're down 12%. What did I say? 18, 17% on the NASDAQ and, uh, yeah, 12% on the S&P 500. I mean, that's, that's not I don't, much, I don't know really. how much of that's related to geopolitics. All of that was happening well and truly uh, during last year. Um, let's, let's move on. We've got a, a, a new segment at the Wide Lens Podcast and it is called... It's two weeks in a row, man. Uh, I'm loving these the new segments. So it's the director's cuts. Stuff that didn't, <laughs> isn't probably worth that talking about for that long, but it's probably worth noting. I want to talk about the first one. Um, bugger the metaverse. Disney is bringing it to life. It's not what you've got written here. No. Uh, yeah. yeah. It's getting too censored. We can't... We gotta, yeah. Disney PG. to develop residential communities across the US. The first 600-acre development will be in Southern California. The, com- the complexes will be aimed at all ages, including 55 and up. There is this picture. We're, we're going to get this up. It's the artist um, impression of the story living by Disney community, I think they're calling it. Um, uh, with a new range of residential communities, Walt Disney Co. says it is moving beyond storytelling and into story living. <laughs> and I've, I've got no idea what this actually means. Does it mean Mater, Mater and Lightning McQueen are going to be driving around the village? Their, I mean, that would be pretty their, cool. Where do they, what's the area they live in? Uh, something. Ca- California Springs? Something Springs. Anyway. Yeah, I can't recall. 
Do you reckon it's going to uh, be like movie world where you go, they've got like ranches and like, you know, old bars <laughs> and like old horses. <laughs> so I don't know what's going on here, but uh, Disney is going all in on real life and not going anywhere near the metaverse. Just another arm of Disney. They're going to have a property development. What the hell's going on? Like, why not? I'm fascinated. Let's see how that one unfolds. (laughs) Crazy. Um, What else we got? This one didn't make the cut, didn't make the movie, but interesting. Tim Cook's pay. Now, I don't know if anyone has been looking at this, but uh, essentially (laughs) Apple are proposing to pay Tim Cook around $99 million. Um, Was it in stock or cash? Uh, A a mix of both. So investors are being asked to approve the $99 million pay package awarded last year. Um, so, oh, the, so he got awarded it last year. And now you've got to approve it, which seemed backwards presumably to me. He's but m- presumably he's met. So if he, he was awarded it, did, presumably he's met, all met his KPIs and uh, yeah, whatever, the yeah, whatever they are. Um, I was surprised that a lot of their performance are based on share price, not cash flow and profitability. That's another, another issue. Is anyway, that why they were doing buybacks? Um, so his, his pay was made up of, possibly, uh, his pay is made up of $82 million. How can we bucks, jack up the share price? $82 million in stock, $12 million bucks as a cash bonus. You and I need to talk about pay. <laughs> and $3 million salary. I mean, that's... <laughs> how much is enough? Well, just... But, pre- just I was just going to say, but look at what the company has done. So... Since 2011, Apple's total shareholder return, so that's, you know, dividends, etc., has exceeded 1,000%. I don't know what it did off the top of my head last year. Over the last 12 months, I should have looked. Uh, but, you know, they've, they've gone from, I recall, when Amazon, Apple, and Alphabet, and probably Facebook as well, we're all around the seven eight hundred billion dollar mark, and there was this debate: who's <laughs> who's the first to hit a trillion? Dollars? I remember that. And and most people were saying uh, Amazon would, uh, Facebook maybe Alphabet, Facebook. and Apple was all kind Facebook's of always, not even in the top ten anymore. No, they've they've disappeared anyway. So uh, anyway, Apple were the first. They hit first they hit two trillion, and I think they hit three, three trillion, trillion as well. So um, look, you, you can't argue with his, you can't argue with his performance. And just good. just on that pointing out that chart, S and P five hundred during that same time up two hundred and eighty percent. So yes, you're up five times the S and P five hundred. Take um, that any day. Screw diversification. Just go long Apple. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's get the next hey, one. Uh, probably running out of time. Let's get into tips and recommendations. All right. Uh, so another TV show this time on Amazon Prime. Speaking yeah. of Amazon, um, a show called Nine Perfect Strangers. Now, I don't know if you've oh, yeah, heard yeah. about this. Nicole Kidman's the lead. Um, Melissa McCarthy's in it, uh, who I love. I think she's awesome. Um, th- there's quite a few faces that you recognise. Yeah. Anyway, so the, the premise is Nicole Kidman runs this, um, I'll call it a health and wellness it's a retreat. movie or a show? Uh, it's a show. Series, right. Seven episodes, okay. maybe. Oh, yeah. Uh, took me about four months to get through it, but... Um, it's pretty intense at times. Uh, a lot of it focuses on micro dosing, which is this. Oh yeah, yeah, I, I do that. Yeah, <laughs> figured some of those stories. Um, but yeah, so using mushrooms, using um, uh, I can't remember what what else, but other drugs to basically alleviate people's pain, to have them go back and live the trauma, and and then be able to move through it. People do that with um, marijuana now. Prescription marijuana. I think they've been doing that for years. Yeah, sure. Honestly. But now it's legal. <laughs> uh, yeah, anyway, so really good, really interesting. It kind of went, it, it was pretty trippy, as you might expect. Um, pretty interesting, a little bit different. 
some pretty crazy scenes and um, not to give it away, maybe drop the volume, but a lot of the stories end up being intertwined. Mm. Uh, which was pretty cool. So, did, does that did that do anything? Like, did it change your perspective on anything? Like watching that? No, no. Okay, you just watched the show and just watched it. And just it was kind worth. of enjoyed it, and uh, yeah, I mean, it gets you thinking and ask questions. And I happen to know a psychologist quite well. And uh, oh, is that right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> she was saying, uh, I know a few, but one in particular. Anyway, so yeah, um, and she was saying, you know, this is an emerging thing. There's more and more research, mm. but you know, it, it's there isn't sufficient research to really kind of pin it down, but mm. interesting. Uh, so out of out of ten, Matt scale out of ten, what did they give? Don't look up. Two or three. It was rubbish. I think I gave it two out of five, so it's four out of ten. I'd give this probably a six. It was pretty okay. interesting. It kept me coming back. Um, I don't have it's Amazon. It's pretty intense at times, though. So maybe we'll do a free uh, free subscription. Just do a free one. I yeah. get phone calls from Amazon from the automated lady saying that this is Amazon. Do you get that? <laughs> no. I just hang up. No. <laughs> um, All right, what do you got? I've got no time for mine, so we... Uh, <laughs> Whatever. Come on, man. Pony up. Don't judge me on this, I'm but I haven't had a chance late. to watch much late, like this week, because um, <laughs> Deb's... <laughs> Deb put on uh, Love is Blind on Netflix. Ah, yeah. And, um, You've been raving about this all come week. Come on, You've been man. loving it, man. No, no, we've just... Tinder been... swindle on Love is Blind. <laughs> what the hell's going on? <laughs> So Love is Blind, it's 15 girls, 15 guys in, a, um, in pods and they have dates um, and they just chat and they start to find their favourites without seeing each other. So it's all just on voice. Uh, now all the guys in one pod... No, 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 no. no. Yeah, so imagine like uh, all the guys on one side of the house, all the girls on the other side of the house and they've got, you know, like if 15 pods like right next to each other okay. and each guy and girl sits on either side of the pod right. and there's a microphone and they talk and chat and get to know each other. They can't see each other. They, they can't see each other. You just right. talk. And throughout the whole series, you so the whole point is you're supposed to propose to someone at the, at the end of it. You don't have to, obviously. Um, but I feel like that's the point of every reality show. A number now. of these people propose. Um, and the whole thing is, you know, talking about experiment, life experiments, you know, these people fall in love with these people and then just seeing the reactions um, after they meet face-to-face is really, like, you can just even just tell by someone's immediate <laughs> reaction. Like, Fuck. Uh, <laughs> um, some people are pleasantly surprised, others sure. less so. Yep. Um, but then they go on and um, spend time together, go to Cancun, and then they bring oh, in okay. other couples that they've... Sp- so all these people are dating while they're in the house. Yep. But, you know, just by speaking. But it's what I... And so they go to Cancun, they spend time together and, you know, some had these... Just large, the two of them? Like, so... No, uh, two of them... every couple going Yeah, to they are, yeah. if they propose. But every couple's kind of in... They go do their own shit. Yep. And then, like, at the end, they get everyone together. And, and then, okay. you know, you and I may have been trying to fight for the same girl and she's there and she may have chose you and not me. And oh, it's a bit awkward. Going, no, I'll go with that guy over there. Yeah, it's a bit awkward. <laughs> so there's these uncomfortable conversations people have. Yeah, right. And, you know, the edit, edit directors make it... Make you hang like on a cliffhanger on the on the end of that episode. So you're like, oh, put the next one on. Uh, so I didn't want to watch it anymore. But Deb was just last night. She's like, nah, I want to watch it. I'm <laughs> just like, gotta find oh, out. God. All right, so let's just keep watching it. And then they meet their parents and so on and so forth. But what I found was, you know, the, the observation that I made out of that, you know, would I recommend going watching it? If you got nothing to do, it's it's a bit of a laugh. But the thing that I really took out of it was these people going there, and I feel like this is any 
anything to do with investing or business or in life, these people went in there knowing full well what the deal was. They went and then proposed to someone for a reason, right? These, you know, a week these, in Cancun. No, that's not obviously the deal. Uh, well, it's a deal. But they may not be aware of that. But what I'm saying is they went in and proposed to someone because they had a, a really strong emotional connection with someone, right? There was a reason why they proposed. And then a whole yep. bunch of other shit happens. A few of them break up and whatever. And I think shouldn't we always, and this is easy for me to hear, sit here and observe, but isn't it, shouldn't we always kind of go back to what the, the reason why you did something, your original intention, your original purpose, if that was that strong, isn't that thing worth worth fighting for? Yeah. So anyway, I'm a marriage expert now. Um, <laughs> look out, look out for the new podcast. Uh. <laughs> so anyway, it's not it's not that great. I didn't get a chance to do anything else. But uh, let's let's wrap up. Um, we'll be back next week. We've got a, we've got a sure. few things we've already added on this is coming out uh, yeah. yesterday and today. Yep. So. Uh, info at baharianwealth.com.au get in touch and we'll chat next week cheers guys